0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to study the whole chapter. Just in case you're unfamiliar with how many verses that is, that's 58 verses. So I want to encourage you, friends, to do what you can uh, to keep pace in the text so you don't get lost. Um, and so that you don't miss portions uh, of the scripture that we're going to study uh, together. Last time we were together in chapter 16, we read about Saul and the spiritual struggles of Saul and how David went and was chosen to go and to play an instrument called the lyre. It's a struck instrument that's played by the hand and how there was a, a great effect. Uh, it had calmed the heart of Saul. And now as we come into chapter 17, we're confronted with the familiar and the long telling of the story of David and Goliath. Let's read God's word together. <clears throat> now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah, in Aphes Damim and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. And the Philistines said, "I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together." When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David, the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, and Jesse, just as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks, and went and greeted the brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines, and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, whenever they saw the man, fled from him, and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, "'Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him, and great riches uh, will be given to him and his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, "'What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine "'and takes away the reproach from Israel?' For who is this uncircumcised Philistine who should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and... When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, Ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin. And that all this assembly may know that God saves not with a sword and a spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it. And struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sunk into His forehead, and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose and with a shout pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw that David or saw David go out against the Philistine he said to Abner the commander of the army Abner whose son is this youth and Abner said as your soul lives o king i do not know and the king said inquire whose son the boy is and as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Thus far the word of God. May he give us understanding. Help us to be a people encouraged and strengthened by the teaching of his word. Let's pray together. Lord God of heaven, you are faithful forever to your people. Lord, you don't shrink back. You are a God of courage and might. Oh, Lord, you are a God who is everlasting in goodness in mercy and compassion to the weak and to those upon whom he is called to be his own. You're our God and you are great Lord, help us to understand your word and to derive very much help from the ancient stories of your faithfulness and deliverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of the text of Scripture, this is by far one of the most known and common. Possibly at the same level with John 3.16. If not a little more or slightly less, this is one of the most prolifically told narratives of the whole of the scriptures. And whenever people speak of this, this is a a great story. It's a piece of literature for some and people try to approach the text as the classic story of the underdog. The weak man who defeats the stronger and the more terrible enemy. It's good literature, but here, it's biblical history. And I want to encourage you that more than this text, even being about David and Goliath, this is a piece of scripture about God. This is a battle of gods, if you will. The gods of the Philistines, or the false gods of this world, with all their fearful threats... And the greatness of the God of Israel, the God of promises, who loves his people and has power to deliver. Whenever I approach 58 verses of scripture, we have to teach this a little differently. Unless we'll be here till midnight. We still have a four-point sermon. And the text is divided in this way. Fear and the forgetting of God. Verses 1 through 11. Verses 12 through 30, a rebuke by faith's example. A rebuke by faith's example. Verses 31 through 40, the reason for courageous faith. The reason for courageous faith. Verses 41 through 58, faith in the God of glory. Faith in the God of glory of glory. Now I want to be very careful. My usual practice of preaching is to go verse by verse and word by word. And yes, we are doing that. But if I read all of this to you again as we go through the text, we'll inevitably be another ten minutes just in reading the whole chapter once again. So I want to guard from that and I want to direct you to specific things. And I want us to walk through the narrative. Because there are parts. And... As we read it, you may have kind of picked up that the translator and the, the editor of your version and translation of, of the book of 1 Samuel, they've, they've divided it in a way. And so there are sections. And this first thing that I want you to see is this terrible battle. The Philistines coming once again against the Israelites. We've already seen lots of battle between them. We've seen uh, lots of confrontation. And we've seen Saul leading the people of Israel in strength. And in a whole lot of weakness. We've seen Saul in his great victories, but we've also seen his son Jonathan leading by faith where Saul was terrified at the great multitude of the Philistines who had an army with 10,000 chariots. Not to mention the great host of foot soldiers that would have come along with it. This incredible number and how these two men, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer went up against them and how they were chased away and how the people of Israel then came down upon them and won the day so we've seen victories and we've seen well failures but not failures of God we've seen failures from the leadership in the heart of the, the man Saul but when we come to this there is this new engagement <clears throat> and it seems to kind of come out of nowhere there's a break in the narrative we've Got David in the service of Saul, chapter 16, and now straight into what is an invasion. The Philistines invade Israel, and specifically, they invade the land that is given to the tribe of Judah. And the text of Scripture paints the picture really clearly. Now, some of these ancient sites are not the most known to us today. However, archaeologists generally do know the area. Uh, This is on the border, if you will, close at least to what was Philistia, the land of the Philistines. And as the Philistines come in, they come to this, I don't know, someone would have to tell me if this is the case, a strategic site. They're on one side of a valley with uh, sort of a high, high point where they can see over. There's this valley of Elah between them and then on the opposite side you have the Israelites and they're looking across the valley at one another thinking planning that in the valley of Elah that's where they're going to draw up their lines of battle and commence a fight now here we see that this this battle of wits this psychological battle uh, starts and we're not told that the Philistines vastly outnumber the Israelites that's not told to us in the text as we've seen in other portions and previously where it has been that God's people are either hiding or just flat out outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned. No, there's this different dynamic. They've got a champion. They've got a ringer. They've got what some would call a giant. And the text here in uh, verses 1 through 11, they give us a real clear depiction of of this man of Gath, Goliath. He's significant. He's huge. We're told that his height was six cubits in, and a span. So if we're trying to get our heads around that a little bit, you have some earlier text that put him a little bit shorter. Um, but for the Americans in the room, that's about nine feet. He's a big guy. Um and uh, for those who are not Americans, it's 247 centimeters, quite large. I mean, even the texts that give him a little bit of a shorter stature, they still think he's taller than six feet. I'm not six feet tall. Nathan's somewhere around that number. It's a very tall creature. But in the ancient world, that would have been a very tall man even still. But they don't just focus on his stature. They don't just say giant, 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 like, you know, so much of the, the telling of this to children... Uh, actually focuses. But they focus also on his weapons. He's got worldly weapons, big ones. You look in verse 5, he has a helmet of bronze on his head. He's armed in a coat of mail. And then they tell us about the weight of the coat. It's significant. Uh, it, it's thick. It's strong. That's, that's what's told to us. Um, I tried to kind of convert this, uh, this measure of shekels and Ultimately, I kind of gave up. I couldn't get a a real good handle on it, at least in the sources that I was using. But I think the point is conveyed. It's significant. Now, uh, I don't think soldiers today really want to go in with the heaviest. But in this early time, heavier equaled stronger. Stronger equaled more protection. More advanced. More significant. You go on and you read that he's got bronze armor on his legs also. He's got a javelin of bronze that's slung between his shoulders. He's just got this pike sticking up. It's kind of a terrifying thought, if you will. The shaft of his spear, a separate item that he's got, just the shaft of it. It's like a weaver's beam. It's, It's huge. It's not what a normal man would be able to swing. It's just gigantic. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. It's It's very significant. He's such an important man, such an important warrior that he's even got this shield bearer that goes out before him. And and do take note that his sword's not even mentioned. That just happens to be on him. Probably looks like a dagger on his body, but it's a full-blown sword for any normal human being. But what's the depiction? It's his might it's that people are looking on him and they tremble with fear. He is formidable. He looks larger than life and more powerful than any of the people of Israel. They're looking on him. He's got better he's got better jeans. He's just so big and so terrifying. He's got better weapons. He's got better clothes. He's like that kid that used to play on the other team that had the shoes that made him run faster, jump higher, and be able to compete longer. It's terrifying. It's just terrifying. And he's a larger-than-life character, but more than that, he knows it. And what we're told is that whenever he goes, he goes out to uh, the armies of Israel, and they have in mind a different kind of battle. And maybe this is strategic. The Philistines know that, yes, they've had great numbers, and that the God of Israel just doesn't care about that kind of thing. That they were still defeated. Let's just pit this monster before any of those tiny little Israelites on the other side. You get your biggest guy, you bring him down, and you fight against our monster. Our paid hitman of sorts. And I'll tell you what, we'll make a deal. We don't have to fight the whole battle. If one guy can beat him, kill him, we'll be your servants. But if he kills any of your guys, you tiny little Israelites, without your helmets of bronze, your king's got one, but it doesn't seem like anybody else does, you're our servants. And you're going to bow down to us and you're going to serve us. This is the language of slavery. And what are we told? Well, that this happens every day and the Israelites don't answer it with any great champion. Where's Saul? Silent. Silent. The great king of Israel is trembling and hasn't got a word to say. Neither do any of the men. Whether it's Jonathan. Whether it's Abner. Whether it's Eliab or the other brothers of David. Nobody, nobody wants to face this guy. He's the stuff that nightmares are made of. And they're overwhelmed with fear. And so what happens... forget their God, who is a God greater than the might of armies. He's a God greater than the material wealth or the capacity of anything in this world. He is a God who can accomplish everything, but their fear has blinded them, and they look on Goliath, and they tremble with fear, and they hide in themselves. What's the point of this first section? That fear in the lives of people, even God's people often has the effect that we look at our own insufficiencies and we forget the power and the sufficiency of God. We're so focused on what's out there. We're so focused on what He can do and they can do and the world can do to us that we don't even have a thought for God. God isn't even mentioned in these verses of Scripture. What we are told is that for 40 days, 40 days of protracted mocking and humiliation. The people of Israel are quivering with an invading force that they cannot even muster any sort of might to go up against. Fear and forgetting God. We have to be confronted with this, Christians. How many times do we face A Philistine invader who's something of a giant. Probably not ever. Probably not ever. None of us, I think I can say, uh, have known what it is to have an invading army in our own homeland. Thankfully, in this generation. Now there are some who do. We know that. Our neighbors are experiencing this. But we face lots of things. We face things that are insurmountable, don't we? We really do. We have our own versions of Goliath, whether it's a person in the workplace who has power, lots of power, right? And they have it out for us. They don't like us because of our faith. They don't like us because of the way our faces look, the way we've handled ourselves or all these sorts of things. Maybe it's that we have a fear of a different Goliath. Uh, We have a fear of maybe a, a critical Goliath, what other people will think. Maybe it's not a boss. Maybe it's just peers, We're afraid of them, and so we give ourselves over into the servitude of making sure we please them first rather than please God. Maybe we're afraid of the things in our lives. It could be disease. It could be depression. It could be a million different things that come after our bodies and depress us and overwhelm us. And we think in ourselves, this is so much. It's so overwhelming. I don't think, I don't believe there's any hope in this circumstance, this situation. Doctors are not all that helpful. It's terrible we take and we let that fear dominate us and we become a slave to the thing that we perceive is stronger than we are and we forget the power of god we're just left trembling overwhelmed with fear without a thought of the faithfulness of the god who redeems who loves us and has promised to be our god we continue in the passage of scripture, and in verses 12 through 30, we encounter a different kind of person. It's a man of faith, a very young man of faith if we understand the text. We read that David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, the study of the word Ephrathite uh, it generally just means uh, he's a citizen of Judah of Bethlehem uh, in Judah. And this is, it's a peculiarity. We, we end this chapter and there's a lot made about Jesse and about the family line of this man. I mean, I think as New Testament readers, uh, where do we read about Jesse? Well, quite obviously in the genealogy of Jesus. This is an important man uh, in himself. But whenever you look at verse 12, it continues and it focuses in on Jesse who's, well, quite silent uh, in this passage of scripture, almost entirely, uh, we read that in the days of Saul that Jesse was already old and advanced in years. And then we're told about his family and his sons. And these uh, first or oldest three are already in the service of Saul. Eliab, Abinadab, and then Shammah. And that David was the youngest. And so what we have is the narrative just framing for us. What's going on? Telling us about the family. Hey, th- yeah, this is that David. This is the David that encountered Samuel. This is the David that was anointed. Uh, this is the David who's the coming king. He's the son of Jesse. But here, he's, he's young. Uh, he's, uh, you know, if we were to translate it really close to the Hebrew, it, it, we'd have to use like a, he's but a lad, a small boy. It's, it's hard to know. Is he, is he like seven years old? Probably not. He's probably just a young man, not advanced in age. And I think we can generally assume that David's age is, well, it's reflected in the fact that he's not on the front line of battle. And also that he's weak. He's not toned. He's not a man of war yet. He can't wear uh, the kingly armor of Saul. It just it weighs him down and falls down around his body. It's, it's inappropriate for him. But, but nonetheless, he's a brave young man. And this, David, is sent by Jesse. Uh, and what's he doing? Well, he's bringing food uh, for the brothers who've been in this 40-day standoff with the Philistines. And we're told that he, he's bringing an ephah of parched, uh, for you Americans, think a five-gallon jug, 23 liters. It's about that much. Of grain. Uh, Probably fairly heavy, uh, but not too much for a young man to be able to bear. He's bringing that and he's also bringing cheeses or compressed loaves of some sort. This could be cheese like you and I think of cheese. It could also be pressed apples. Cheeses is literally a word that means pressed things. So a little bit of information for you as you read older texts. But anyway, he sends him on his way. I mean, This is just a normal thing. How are armies fed in the field? In this day, it's not with MREs, meals ready to eat, pre-prepared foods. No, no, no. It's from families. They are supporting uh, those who are in the field in something like a 40-day protracted battle. It makes only sense. And so there's David, and he's going back. He's, yes, been in the service of King Saul, but it does seem, as you read later, uh, that he's not... The glorified David yet. Saul doesn't even know who he is. Doesn't know what household he comes from. And you think to yourself, well, chapter 16, isn't David playing the liar for Saul and calming his heart? What's going on there? We want to read our Bibles responsibly. Well, I think it means that David is the guy that they bring in whenever Saul is having a really tough time. David plays and then he's promptly kicked out of the presence of the king. There's no Saul. Here's this great guy. He's David. You might like him one day. He could be your son-in-law. He could be your, you know, worst nightmare. Uh, But here's David. There's none of that. David's nobody. He's just a little brother who is pretty good at playing music and, well, even better at fighting great big Philistine giants. But we continue to read. And what does he do? He comes and he finds the army. But what's going on? They are going out. Right? We're told that the host is going out to form up battle lines. Host, whenever you read this in the scripture, means a military army. When you read the, the title of God, Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of hosts. is talking about an angelic army, right? So David comes, he sees the armies, they're leaving and they're marching. And we're told that what are they doing? That they've got this war cry. Whatever it is, Israel's coming, you better look out, we've got sharp swords sharper than yours. I don't know what it is, but it's something frightening and it's loud and it's their chant and they're getting worked up for battle and David hears it and he sees it and he gets there just in time. And the scene's like this, this little boy overburdened with these goods goes and tosses it to the guy that's going to make sure nobody steals the bags and he runs to go find his brothers. i got to go see him i got to go see Avinadab. i got to find out what's going on. Dad told me to do it. And so there he is. And whenever he's in line, he's there. He finds them and there's the face off. And you've got the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other. And here's Goliath doing what he always does. Any of you Israelites want a piece of me? Who's man enough to fight me? If any one of you will do this and kill me, we'll be your servants. Otherwise, I'll kill one of you, and you will all be our servants. It's the same line. And this text of Scripture tells us very clearly in verse 23 that when he spoke these words, the same as before, David heard him. Whenever the Scripture gives kind of short sentences like that, pay attention. There's this foreboding. Finally, the man to answer the taunt is here David heard him this isn't just going to be ignored it's not going to be a thing that just hits the ears of David and bounces off this is a courageous man even if he's young and then we're told in verses 24 down through uh, verse 27. That David is going around and, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. This is a day way before text messages and cell phones. A day before the internet and the, you know, electricity. That's obvious. But this is even a day before a printing press. There's there's not even a newspaper flying around. He's there. This is all news. They've been in a 40-day standoff. What's going on? He goes around. One person after another person after another person. Tells him the same thing. And it seems that David just can't believe it he's surveying the men and one after another after another amongst the armies of the god of heaven everybody's trembling before one man and in fear they're bowing down and they're paying service at least to his impressive stature in their minds and souls and they won't go anywhere near him and david just cannot believe it and one after another David, if anybody kills him, Saul's going to make him rich. Saul's going to give him his daughter. You know, the good-looking one, not the other one. The good-looking one, and you're going to be free. Oh, this is significant. So you mean there's a bounty. There's so much desperation. Saul can't go. Jonathan's not going to go. Abner's not going to go. Somebody's got to go, and if they go, they're going to be well set in life. But do take note, David doesn't pay any attention, it doesn't seem, to the offer of bounty. It's just there. We're just told that this is, you know, this is what's held out. We do know, as you continue to study, we'll see. David follows up. He has quite an interest in the daughter, uh, Michael. And uh, that will become a whole other part of the story of David and Saul and the kingship of Israel. But there is this interesting thing that begins to happen as David goes and is courageous and says, basically, how can this thing be done? How can the charge here be made against the people of Israel, against this army, and it not be answered? He's defying the armies of the living God. and He gets to his older brother, Eliab, and we're told in verse 28 that it's met with a really strange response. It says that, His older brother heard whenever he spoke to the men and that his anger was kindled against David. And he says to him, why have you come down and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? What are you even doing here? Don't you know your business is elsewhere? That's kind of the depiction. There's shame on the heart and on the mind of the brother. Here comes my no good weakling little brother who's supposed to be minding his own sheep and he's all in the business of the people of Israel and the armies of God what's he doing here it's embarrassing David why would you do it but you go on and then you have an accusation Eliav makes against his brother he says I know your presumption and the evil of your heart For you have come down to see the battle. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, little brother, you just have a perverse curiosity. It's evil. You just want to see grown men fall by the sword. It's entertainment for you. Is that what you're here for? You just want to see people be slaughtered? But what's all under this? That's a pretty serious, that's a hard, harsh accusation. Against David. Well you can see what David says in response. It's it's quite simple. Uh, look, Look there in verse 29. He says. What have I done now? Let me say. Doesn't that have some history behind it? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? What did I do now to you? I haven't done anything but speak. Words. Words of truth. Then he turned away from his brother, dismissed him, and towards others and continued. What's going on here? It is the rebuke of the example that is set by the faith of David. All the other men are trembling, but David's not trembling. All the other men are cowards. All the other men are forgetting God. All the other men are completely overwhelmed by what's in front of them in the world. And they forget the God of heaven. They forget the living God whose armies... Are being defied, and they don't have a heart toward doing anything about it. And David says, This cannot stand. And it rebukes those men. You ever met a faithful person who is struggling with some of the same struggles you are? And have you ever felt the weight of the rebuke whenever you see them stand strong? And maybe you're tempted to say, This is just an act. It's just an external thing. They're just making it all up. They're strong. It's just a front. It can't possibly be that somebody could have that peace or that strength in the face of this kind of disaster. There's almost a jealousy that goes along with it. I will admit to you that as a young parent, I would look on the sufferings... Of other families who were saying, oh, my baby sleeps all the way through the night and I hadn't slept in about three months. And I would say, they've got to be telling stories. No way possible until we had an easy kid. (laughs) There's jealousy. Friends, I think we ought to all be encouraged and confronted with the fact that at times we ought to look on the strong faith of others and receive the rebuke in turn and be corrected. And let other people's faith serve as an example to strengthen us. Rather than to wound us. Also a thing I want to point you to. Is that the example of David's faith is one that feels a godly offense. At the things that this uncircumcised Philistine of verse 26 has been saying about his God. We've got to be confronted That if we are a people so afraid and so overwhelmed with the world, that we ought not forget the glory of our God and the praise he deserves. And that there may be a day where you just have to call it like it is and look at that uncircumcised Philistine and say simply, those words can't stand because my God is full of power. And it may be a day whenever the Christian has to open their mouths in the defense of the glory of our God to speak the truth in love but also in power and sometimes very directly to people. We go on in the passage of Scripture in verses 31 through 40 and we see the reason for courageous faith. So David's gone around the army and he's told these guys, how can you let this guy, this uncircumcised Philistine, you should really think of this as an insult, that's how David means it, how can you let this guy mock all of you? How can this stand? Well, the word of it gets around. He gets all the way back to Saul. Hey, Saul, we've got this guy. Finally, there's a guy who says, maybe there's a chance. There's a guy who has a little bit of courage, and he might go up against him, and he's, he's talking a good talk, and so Saul says, all right, bring him to me. Not knowing that it's the guy who plays music, his favorite music, his helpful music, and his tents. And so David comes in. And you have this encounter between the king of Israel, very directly, where David is permitted to speak in verse 31. You go on, I'm sorry, in, in verse uh, 32. David comes in and he immediately speaks. And he says to the king, let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Well, that's a real description of the faithless heart, the fearful heart, that their hearts are failing. Now, whether or not this lands on Saul, I don't know, but nonetheless, Saul is included in it. As is every single man in the tent. David is saying, don't let your heart tremble. Let no man's heart fail. I'm going to go take care of this mess. And then the response of Saul to David, verse 33. He says, you're not able to go and fight against this Philistine. You're just a little boy. You're a youth. And he's been a man of war from the time of his youth. He's got so much experience. He's got so much height. He's got all these toys that are very dangerous. He's got all this armor. You can't go against this guy. That's the feeling. David is hearing Saul basically say... "Uh, you're probably not the guy for the job you don't seem qualified now that's real discouragement I mean that's real personal too someone says if you well yeah I agree it needs to be done I'm desperate for it to be done I'm willing to give great riches to anybody who's willing to give it a try but I just don't think you can do the job you just don't look like the sort. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not experienced enough. You're probably not the man for the job. And so David responds, verse 34. And does he respond on his own context, his, his own qualities? No, not at all. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I struck him, or I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David's saying, hang on a second. I've done things. I fought lions and bears. I did this and I delivered sheep from their mouths and from their claws. Hang on a second, Saul. You don't know me. I'm a guy that's worried about deliverance. That's not all David says. That's not the end of the story. It's not about what he did, what he's done. He's just saying and stating the facts of history as he understands them. He goes on and says more. He says, your servant has struck down, verse 36, both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And then in verse 37, he tells him why he can say such a thing. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God will deliver me. My God is so great and so faithful. He has never turned his back on me. And I want to tell you, Saul, what I remember. My God didn't abandon me whenever I snatched the sheep that I love out of the mouth of that lion. Or even that other time when the bear came. He's been faithful and I know he's been faithful because those sheep are still in my flock standing on four legs and in health. I know my God who delivered me. And that Philistine's nothing compared to my God. It's not about what David could do. The beard ripping lion crushing bear slayer. It's about his God who delivers Now that hits Saul, and it shuts his mouth. And the only response that Saul has to the testimony of God's greatness is this. Go, and the Lord be with you. David's faith is not in nothing. That's the point I want to make to you from this. His faith has good grounds, good reasons And it's the character and the long-standing faithfulness of his God to him. He can't forget it. He He won't recoil in fear. His God has always been there. He's never failed. His God has always delivered him. And why would he doubt? His faith has a resting place and it's in the hand of his Father in heaven. There is no reason for him to doubt. God has never abandoned him. Why would he start now? A lot of times people look on Christians and they think, Oh, those are people of blind faith. All these different things in life, whatever it is, whether it's money, whether it's warfare, whether it's physical suffering or loss. They look on Christians and they say, that's just blind faith. You even hear atheists sometimes saying, I don't have enough faith to have faith. Like it's just baseless belief. David's saying, oh no, no, no. It's belief and faith because of the past performance of my God. That's powerful. I told you this is not a battle between Goliath and David. This is a battle between false gods and the fear of this world and the God of heaven. And that's exactly what it is. That's how David understands it. He's just a courageous tool. He's just ready to rely on his God. That's all it is. And really, David's not all that extraordinary or extravagant. He's just a man who knows his God And who has not been dominated by worldly fear. So I call you Christian. I encourage you. Yes. Have faith like David. That's so cliche today. But let me remind you that your God has brought you forth from the dust of the earth. God has brought you forth in life from your mother. He has raised you up, he has kept you in his arms, he has fed you every single day. Clothes on your back, warm homes, comfortable beds, care, love, family, this church. He's never failed you. There's nothing in this life that's going to take you far from his hand or away from his loving eye. You have every reason to have faith like David's. You have every reason to be courageous through things and before things that you can't control and have no power to conquer. We go on in the text of scripture in verses 41 through 58. And there is faith in the God of glory. Now this section admittedly is very difficult to title. Like if you're going to go through and make heading titles. I noticed my ESV doesn't even try that. Other sections they'll kind of break it up and give a heading title. They don't even give it an attempt here. Um, but it's it's it 's an easy enough section. This is where uh, iron meets iron right you 've got um, or maybe I should say bronze meets stone uh, if you will you've you 've got david and he 's already tried on the armor of King Saul the best he could give him the best toys of the kingdom of israel and they just don 't fit him. They weigh him down and David realizes it he can 't move he can't he can 't get ten feet he 'd have Really, no ability to follow that faith up with action. He just takes it off and takes five stones, puts it in his shepherd's bag, takes a staff in his hand and presses on. Verse 41, the Philistine moves forward and comes near to David. and, And there's this interaction that, again, presses home what we've already been saying. This isn't David versus Goliath. No. Verse 42, you have the Philistine looking at David and he disdained him because of his youth. Scripture tells us he's ruddy and handsome in appearance. Wonderful. He's a good-looking guy. But you go on, and in verse 43, you read that the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And here it is. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, the wickedness of Goliath is bound on faith in false gods, okay? He's standing on faith in the gods of the Philistines, of the five great cities in the city of Gath where he comes from. You know, those gods that fell down and lost their heads at the sight of what? The Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel. It didn't work out too well for Gath if you go back and study in the book of 1 Samuel. And he's looking down and he's cursing David by his gods. This is a ridiculous thing. It really is a battle of divinities here. It is, this is something a lot like the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah. We're going to pray and see who lights a fire from heaven. It's a whole lot like this. This is a battle of gods. And so David hears this. We're not told exactly what the curse is. It's probably better that blasphemies are not recorded. Uh, but you go on and you read the response of David to this. He looks Goliath in the eye, probably looking at with a cranked neck, and he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom You have defied. You got all those toys, but I've got a God that'll take you right back to the dust. You come at me with all these curses, but you're defying somebody that's not me. You're not mad at me. No, no, you've insulted my God. And let me tell you what, Goliath, you're nothing for him. David's got a whole lot more to say, and well, frankly, he's a man of words and quite good with them, even at a young age. He doesn't write him a psalm, no, he gives him a backhand. He goes on in verse 46, he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Who's going to fight my battle? The Lord will. And he's going to give you to me. He's going to give you to me into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of all the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that they may know, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now that is significant. You see, I think the Philistines ought to have learned a lesson at this point. They've already tried to play around. They've already fought against the Israelites and stole the ark of God, and they've realized that this God is just not one to mess with. There was a God among them in the battle. We've already read them fearful in saying this. And also, as, as the ark passes city to city to city, eventually they're saying, hey, we've got all these tumors and all these mice. Let's get this thing out of here. Let's be done with these people. And this God, and this, is too much for us. The Philistines should have just trembled. Goliath should have been horrified. Because David doesn't say, I'm tough. You think you're so tough, I'm so much tougher. No, he says, my God's going to take you down. He's going to give you the monster of who you are into my hand. This little old bitty Paul. You're going to be mine. Because my God is greater than you. We read in verse 48, the simple account of the actual battle itself, man to man with God overlooking it all. Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly. David's no coward. He runs toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David puts his hand in his bag and takes out a stone, and he slung it at the Philistine and hit him on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face. To the ground. Let me just tell you what, children's cartoons that record that make the idea of a stone sinking into somebody's head a very strange thing to watch. But that's what we're told. One stone from the tiny pouch showed David, the shepherd boy, hits him and kills him and he falls to his face on the ground. And then in verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And you say, well, where's the hand of God? Well, it's the hand of God that wrote the book of physics. That made stones harder than human skulls. That made force. All these sorts of things upholding the hand of David in faith who is willing and willful to attack and to believe that God will give him over and to deliver him from his enemies. We go on, we find out in verse 51, David's a man of his word. He goes over and stands over the body of the Philistine and he takes out the sword of Goliath, draws it out of its sheath and killed him by striking off his head with it. David meant what he said. And then we go on to read and study what happens. Well, the armies of the Israelites then pursue the fleeing Philistines. I tell you what, if you want to know what a Philistine looks like, well, the Israelites only know what their backside looks like because they're always running from them. They're always running from them. And here they are again. And they chase them where? All the way back to Gath. All the way to Ekron. And they're slaying the armies of the Philistines again. God gave the victory. You may have noticed that the way I titled the sermon is probably not like most. You read this and you think, wow, did the pastor get confused and give us a New Testament sermon Title to an Old Testament text, he saved his people. Who we're talking about? Who we're talking about? It's not David. The he is God. The biblical tones are so plain to this passage. David's just a shadow of another shepherd boy who's going to come out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah who's going to take up and kill a foe that is so much bigger than a seven-foot, nine-foot Philistine giant clothed in all sorts of weapons. He's going to put to death, death. This is so clear from the biblical text. This is only a shadow. And that that boy, the shepherd boy, is going to become a king. And he's going to sit on a throne just as Christ is king and sits on a throne even now. This is a God I can have faith in, the God of David, who's given me the son of David, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, the great conquering boy who occupies the heart of a loving father. I can have faith in this kind of God. A God who delivers because he loves us. And friends, I just want to encourage you and call you to the faith that David evidenced. That another shepherd boy evidenced that the Lord has shown to you and to me if we're truly his children. You read the last little portion of the text, verses 55 through the end and 58, and you've got David, and he's being really encountered and really thought upon uh, by Saul, the king. Who is this? I don't know. Abner says, I'm not really sure. David looks and he says, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so, friends, as we continue to study, we're going to get more and more and more of David, the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who we're going to see again in Gath as a madman running from Saul. May it be that the Lord gives us the sort of strength to stand on the promises of an eternal God who delivers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and for the telling of the great deeds You have done. Oh, Lord, that we can know that You have always been a God of deliverance, always a God of salvation. Lord, that You don't fail. Oh, Lord, that Your promises remain even in the midst of our fears. And that, Lord, You're not overwhelmed by all of the terrors and the, the wavering faith of Your people, but that You send a deliverer to be an instrument for us, and for our salvation. Oh, Lord, we thank you for Christ, our Redeemer. Oh, Lord, the Good Shepherd. Oh, Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be a people strong in faith, that, Lord, uh, we would think on you and all of what you've done, and that we would stand before anything in this world, because we know that you are the God who reigns over all. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.